This is the Grass Matters podcast brought to you by Great Southern. I'm your host, Andrea Crothers. Well, the countdown's on just a fortnight until Brexit Day. In a last-ditch effort, it does remain underway to strike a deal, but a no deal is looming. So what does it all mean for Aussie red meat? Well, today's show, it's all about European and the UK markets. Plus, we'll also take a look at the way consumer trends abroad have changed during COVID. And I'll give you a bit of a hint. The comfort cuts embraced this lockdown are a little bit different to the first time around. Today's guest is Nick Sherwood. He's the Managing Director of JVS Global UK. Nick, thanks for being here. Thanks, Andrea. Nice to be here. So, Nick, speaking of lockdowns, you're in London where you guys have just been plunged back into the toughest tier of restrictions that are there. How's everything going? Well, it's it's a fairly mixed up uh, situation at the moment. We'll be in tier three here, which does shut down all the food service and hospitality again, which is a big part of of London, as I'm sure many of your listeners have probably been through this side of the world before. Um, so it's a big blow for for our business and for many uh, businesses in the in that sector. Um, how long we're going to be in tier three? We're not sure. This is this is one of the challenges of uh, of of COVID lockdown two is that it's been quite a moving target. You don't we don't quite know how long we'll be in uh, a particular tier or if it'll get worse or or, or get better. Um, we're hoping for the better. They are rolling out the vaccine here now in the UK, so uh, that's a, that's a positive sign. But unfortunately, the trend across a lot of our main European markets through Germany, Netherlands, uh, Scandinavia, has been for tighter lockdowns as we've moved through November and into December uh, than, than loosening. So it's, it's made business quite uh, challenging at this back end of the year. Not a very nice Christmas gift at all. But Nick, about yourself, you've been over in the UK for about 20 years, if I'm correct, but you also grew up in New Zealand. I did, yes. I was uh, a sheep and beef farm in uh, in the North Island, and um, after uh, I'd travelled a little bit before before university to the UK and, and South America, and uh, I went to university and did a, a sort of uh, business marketing type of degree, and then was really interested in in global markets. So the meat industry was one, well, when I had a, a bit of a line into it from the farming background, but uh, New Zealand, very export driven country. So I thought it'd give me some exposure to the world and, and it has, although a lot of it gravitated towards UK and Europe. Uh, so I've been, been stuck here for, for 20 years enjoying this weather. Yeah, well, you know, I wouldn't choose it, but I'm happy for you <laughs> in the cold weather over there. But what do you do with your role uh, with JBS Global UK? What are you responsible for? Uh, well, our our business here is the sort of inward facing um, uh, for all of JBS, not just JBS Australia, so North and South America as well, uh, for the UK and European markets. So on the on the red meat side of the business, we do have another a sister company that handles the poultry, but we look after the beef, lamb and pork uh, for for UK and Europe that comes from those different JBS channels. Australia is a big part of that because uh, we have beef and lamb from from uh, from Oz and it's a big part of our business. And um, 
that's uh, as as are the other parts. I don't want to belittle those either. But um, uh, Australia's a, a big part of what we do here. So give us a bit of a snapshot of the UK and EU red meat markets for those of us back here in Australia. From I guess from our perspective, they're sort of comparatively small customer but high value, yeah? Yeah, there's quite a quite a wide range from, and I suppose broadly you can split them into retail and food service as, as in most markets. And um, we, have, uh, we have a footprint in about, Virtually all of the European countries, we we will deliver meat to uh, from um, right across from from Scandinavia to the Mediterranean to out to the east and and here here in Western Europe. And uh, retailers are quite um, parochial. Uh, the domestic beef or domestic meat primarily makes up a lot of the the, the retail business for most countries. Uh, we provide some top-up or niche business where they're looking for certain quality attributes that, say, great uh, great southern Australian beef uh, could provide, and the um, and lamb uh, and the rest of the beef goes into into the the food service sector again, providing that sort of uh, finer dining uh, restaurant type of experience. Uh, lamb is a little more mixed between retail and um, uh, and food service. Why is that? I think because there's not as much domestic production uh, of uh, of lamb uh, around Europe, and even though the UK has quite a high lamb uh, population, the they still require some balance of import to to meet demand. Yeah, the UK has a very high domestic herd of good beef animals, of which, of course, we know a lot of them from uh, they've been used as seed stock for Australia and many other countries around the world, Hereford and Angus, are still predominant here in the UK. So they have a, a pretty good quality of, um, of of beef that services the domestic market uh, here in the UK. Uh, but the, on lamb, there is required, there's some balance that fits into, um, into the retail sector. And that's the sector we fit in with a lot of our lamb, particularly our great southern lamb. Uh, uh, which uh, which is which is good news for for Australia and for us. Given the particularly strict low volume quotas, is that why Aussie beef and lamb, regardless of whether you're Great Southern or more broadly, targets that more premium food service type market as opposed to just trying to you know give steaks for mums and dads at the retail shops? Yeah, it's exactly that, Andrea. The we pay one. There's a limited quota of beef. And lamb that can come into the market. Uh, there's quite protectionist up here in Europe and the UK uh, historically, uh, and we pay quite high levels of duty. Uh, we pay 20% on our beef, uh, and the actually lamb is zero, but we have a rather limited, a rather capped quantity that we can import. So when you add that 20% duty on top of the beef, it, it pumps it up into quite an expensive article. How is Australian beef and lamb perceived by customers over there? It's got a it's got a really good reputation. Australian beef and lamb, uh, it's, it's for its quality, for its provenance, its uh, durability. It, it, uh, it, we ship a lot of chilled meat to the market now, and as you can appreciate, uh, 
it's a long long distance sort of 10 12,000 miles to ship uh, so we need a, a good quality chilled article and and Australia's renowned for that uh, the quality and the durability uh, which fits into into the market channels well here and um, yeah I think most people have a well our sectors of the market have a, have a really good recognition of Australia of the quality of Australian beef and lamb and, and largely are frustrated by the, the limited, uh, the cap we have on, on the importation volumes. What about grass-fed, particularly Great Southern? How's it perceived? Well, Great Southern for us has really revolved around lamb because of market access. Uh, we'd dearly love to do some Great Southern beef. The attributes of Great Southern beef being grass-fed, hormone-free. The whole, the whole of Europe is hormone-free on beef, so... No hormones can come into this market anyway, but so Great Southern already ticks that box uh, with with hormone free. Um, uh, but unfortunately for us, Great Southern beef, because of some of the hurdles of accessing the EU market, uh, we don't have many UCAS approved farmers within the Great Southern beef profile, and that means our access is rather limited uh, to to the market. So we've concentrated on the on the lamb where we do have market access, and that's that's been met very very well in the in the retail sector, who are really geared up around the the farm assured status and and high welfare status in the UK and in Europe. That's that's a number one tick in their box to even. To even get an audience with them, you have to be able to offer that type of uh, level of assurance, and and it's really a bit of parity with what happens in the domestic production here in the UK and Given Europe. Given that most of the imports, you know, New Zealand is a real dominator in that market, is the Aussie brand then particularly with something like Great Southern, which has you know the paddock to plate, the farmer story, all of that, is it perceived as like this kind of niche, beautiful luxury item or, you know, is it still trying to cut through past the Kiwis or how's, how's that go? Uh, yeah, the slightly different streams in that New Zealand have a lot of that um, similarity with our Great Southern program in their own programs uh, there. So we are competing against New Zealand, there's no no question. But uh, what we like to think we offer a point of difference in terms of uh, we big uh, up the, the eating quality of the Australian lamb, uh, its durability, um, and and some of its other provenance uh, of the the higher welfare. But for sure, we do have quite a strong competitor in in New Zealand, and 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 they tick a number of the same the same uh, boxes. Uh, so really. Great Southern has been our vehicle or our avenue into that side of the market. I think without Great Southern, we wouldn't have the market presence. Yeah, and obviously they don't yeah, have the intramuscular fat that we have in our lamb. No, no, they don't. Uh, Is that a hard one to swallow um, as a Kiwi, Nick? <laughs> <laughs> it's a, uh, look, they've both got very good properties uh, and, and as I you know, I've I've come to love the Australian lamb uh, even more so than the than the New Zealand lamb over the years. 
that's a tough thing to say. Yeah, no, well, it's, on, it's recorded now, so you're stuck with it. <laughs> um, so describe the sort of places where you would find it. To take us through the sort of um, retail places that you would find lamb over there, for example. Well, our great southern lamb is, is actually dedicated to one retailer here at the moment uh, called Asda, Asda Walmart. Uh, is a part of the, of the Walmart group and is the sort of second largest retailer in the UK behind Tesco. That's a huge get. Yeah, it is. It's, uh, you know, we've, we've worked closely with, with these retail partners, uh, we'd like to call them, uh, to, to position Australian lamb as an equivalence or, or, or even higher than, than their British or New Zealand offer. And, um, and we've been successful in that. Uh, it's and the Great Southern program really delivers for them, uh, and it's a testament to the work that the team back in Brooklyn, Mark Ingalls, and the team have done with the supply base uh, over the years. Because we we actually started the Great Southern Farm Assurance program for British retailers quite some years ago. We had a couple on the go then, Tesco and Asda, the two biggest ones, and uh, it. it and, and Tesco sort of dropped off after a couple of years and, and focused back on more on British lamb. But, the, um, but we stuck to the farm assurance scheme. Great Southern emerged out of that. And, and 10 years on, it's still, still going. There's still legs for it to grow further, I think, on, uh, on lamb for, for this side of the world. And hopefully we'll come on to Brexit, I'm sure, shortly. But that may improve our market access that will allow a little more penetration. And we will get to Brexit in just a moment, but given that it was created for those markets, how have you seen the program evolve in that time? It's uh, It's been a slow burn uh, because of the competitor-type products that we face. British lamb and New Zealand lamb is very similar to Great Southern in terms of the properties. It's grass-fed, it's free-range, it has uh, obviously in a lot of instances, a never ever type of product, hormones and, and antibiotics also. So as I say, Great Southern's been our, our access point to even get into play in those, those parts of the market. Uh, it's, uh, it ha- ha- we've also made some progress in, in Europe with it, in Denmark. Uh, we've, we've run some quite good Great Southern and these are very strongly branded Australian Great Southern campaigns with a retail chain up in Denmark Co-op. And uh, they've been really successful and the Danish people really welcome and, and enjoy the, uh, the Australian lamb, particularly the Great Southern, the story behind Great Southern. They like a lot of Aussie things. Bit of a they very do. influence. <laughs> <laughs> there is, in fact, that's, uh, and that's a big, big part of it for Denmark. They, they really love Princess Mary. And um, best thing that you could do for Australian done, branding, right? <laughs> she's done. She's done good things for Australia up there for sure. Now you just need to get a picture of her eating some great Southern lamb or beef, and you'll be sweet. We've been working on that. Really, and, and it hasn't yeah, hasn't quite happened yet. But she has endorsed it Australian meat for us a couple of times. But particularly because she's from Tassie, so the, with the, yeah, I know, I know. With the, we haven't quite got it with the lamb chop in her mouth yet. Hey, so. just out of curiosity, Nick, just for my own, you know, personal nosiness, how do you get in contact with Mary to start marketing your beef and lamb? 
Well, we did it through the the Danish um, Australian uh, connection, and we did have got the, the last campaign we had with uh, up in Denmark. One of the guys, he's actually subsequently left this a couple of years ago, had been to university with Mary, and uh, so had a, a very tenuous, I don't think they were big buddies or pals, but we managed to get uh, word through a couple of channels in Australia and and also through the Aussie Danish um, sort of trade enterprise up there and uh, that was sort of part, uh, we're a member of. And um, yeah, she gave us, uh, we would have liked to have her on the front page, sort of tucking into some great Southern uh, lamb or beef, but I'm just picturing this bloke from uni she hasn't spoken to in, you know, decades probably. He's giving me a call going, um, just so you know, I've made some friends with some other Aussies that, you know, just want to, if we could just drop off the lamb chops at the front door, um, the kids will like them. Yeah, they would. I'm sure the kids probably have them uh, fairly often. Australia has a super name up there, because not mainly just because of that, but uh, it's a key market for us for Aussie beef and lamb, Denmark. Well, I've got a slogan for you. You could either have Mary's meat or the monarch's meat. Oh, I like that one, actually. The monarch's Thank meat. Thank you. I'd like some credit <laughs> later. <laughs> That's one for you to work on um, the Brexit deal, if we turn to that. What's the mood like over there at the moment? It's pretty sombre, really. Uh, obviously, the, the decision to split from Europe was pretty even, uh within the country 52 to 48 and um so it's been a fairly divisive few years uh between the two the two sides but um the the general population and and obviously the parliamentarians they just want to get something done now we're we're within a matter of days literally of of uh the transition period ending and we don't quite know what that future is going to look like for, for us and our business, uh, Brexit could be very positive in that the UK has already put Australia at the top of its list to do a free trade deal with. Uh, the Europeans are already working on an Australian free trade deal, albeit it take, will take longer in Europe because there's 27 countries all have to agree. Uh, we do envisage the UK on its own striking a free trade deal with Australia in very short order in 2021. Well, it's interesting. It may not be implemented until... I was just going to say it's interesting Sorry. because um, Tony Abbott, who obviously is trade advisor to Britain now, he said just days ago that he was hoping to have that deal inked by Christmas, which some would say <laughs> is quite ambitious, but I guess it just shows how much yeah. we are, us and UK, are both prioritising that one. And particularly given that it's the most lucrative red meat market in the EU, it's probably a good thing for Australia that we are. It is. It's it's fantastic news for us and the well, and for the Australian industry, the business. It's a. Um, uh, I, I'd like to think that maybe by the midway point, halfway through 2021, that that the Aussie deal could could be implemented. Um, we'll just have to wait and see uh, what quite what they get hung up on and what they don't. But there's certainly a lot of love in the room between Australia and Britain at the moment to get that done very promptly. And that one would hope, we don't know the details of that yet, but we are working with the different trade bodies in 
advisory groups on what um, access for red meat should look like in a in a UK Australian FTA, and that should be more beneficial than it is today, i.e., the reduction of tariffs and uh, and quotas. Obviously, it'll it'll be a two way trade, but uh, the you know that that's really what we we need: greater access uh, and less duties for our lamb and beef. And what could that do for Great Southern? Great Southern lamb, I think, will continue to to penetrate that retail sector. Uh, it's a it's already established player in the retail market here, and uh, it 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 can only it can only grow our footprint into um, into those channels. For Great Southern beef, it, it throws the door wide open. If we can remove this this uh, UCAS sort of requirement or water it down, that the farm that the Aussie farms don't have to get a European audit to be approved, uh, because all the beef ticks all the other boxes as required. And the Great Southern beef, the the pasture fed, high welfare, farm assured, uh, never ever antibiotic free and hormone free, could slot pretty much straight into numerous channels here in the UK. Uh, we've already had preliminary discussions with our retail clients up here about post-Brexit scenarios for Australian beef. So assuming you get better market access, you've clearly got good exposure with places like the um, Walmart uh, line of uh, retail that you've got there that particularly the lamb is into. Do we have the supply in Australia with the Great Southern Program, given it is such a um, premium program to be able to fill that if you do get the market access? I believe so. Uh, from talking with the team in, in Melbourne, the, you know, there's a good uh, critical mass of, um, of cattle in the program now. Uh, I think the other, the other element is, and this is the beauty of, of Australia's uh, meat business, is we can, we can break up the carcass and send the, the cuts to the right markets where the value lies. So it may be that with the UK, we have a lot of demand around loin cuts, steak meat, <clears throat> some, some round cuts. And it may be that in other markets around the world, well, in Asia, that they have greater demand in the, uh, for the other cuts on the carcass. So I think we can just achieve a better balance to the, to the carcass and, um, and, the UK will will have a big part to play in that. Let's turn our attention now to COVID. How have consumer trends changed during lockdown this time around compared to the first one? Well, this this second lockdown has been, in fact, rather more dramatic than the first lockdown because it's come in the in the early winter time, and we've got these very short days, dark nights, and uh, consumer. Uh, trends have, have purchased uh, a rather different uh, article than they did in the earlier in the year when it was summertime. So then it was barbecue, grilling, uh, steak cuts. Now it's more minces, casserole, meat, slow cooked type of uh, type of articles. And um, uh, yeah, it, it's been very noticeable the difference, the seasonality difference to the COVID two versus COVID one. And yeah, that comes down to season, not necessarily that people are deciding different things based on how long they've been trapped indoors. No, no, I think it, it is very much the season. It, it's, uh, 
as I say, as I was saying to you at the start, you know, it's dark here at the moment by 4.30 in the afternoon and not a lot of inclination to get out at 6pm and fire up the barbie uh, when it's cold and wet and dark. We're, uh, so unfortunately, we're, we're grappling with that um, situation and with all the restaurants or many of the restaurants closed in the different regions right across Europe uh, as well as here in the UK. It's it's having quite a, a hard effect on the on the, the steak cut market, uh, and, and normally December would be a month of a lot of Christmas parties and general entertainment going on. It's it's very very quiet there. I know, particularly obviously for food service, that final quarter is the most important quarter. Well, at least in Australia, I imagine it's quite similar um, over there in terms of people, as you said, with Christmas parties and whatnot. Over here at the moment is where we're opening. It's looking like that, you know, that period where you usually have that cliff come January, February, it's looking like that cliff's not going to be there and that food service will be very strong throughout the first quarter here in Australia next year. Do you think once Europe and UK shift out of this lockdown that it will have a similar thing over there? I think there is. There's an underlying demand from the from the consumer, from the populations, to get back out and and do what we do normally, socialise and eat out with friends, uh, uh, etc. So when it does come, there will be quite a strong uh, recovery into the sector. It's the, the the problem we have at the moment a little bit is the goalposts keep getting shifted as to when that recovery might come, and there's a there's a bit of a feeling through throughout Europe, uh, maybe less so here in the UK, that it, it'll be Easter or, or the springtime before before it really gets going again. So we could be in for a, the first quarter, a rather mixed mixed bag of uh, of demand here across Europe. I think the UK will be a bit of ahead of that curve now because we're, the vaccine is under rollout, um, even though. I've just put London back into tier three. That won't last uh, too long. I'd say we'll be out of that in, in early January, uh, as damaging as it is. And the uh, so I think the UK will be slightly ahead of the curve with uh, with some of our bigger European markets. Yeah, well, there's definitely a lot riding on the vaccine. I know that that's the one Australia's got most of its uh, eggs in the basket of. Um, and come March, hopefully, we'll be rolling out here as well. Um, Nick, it's been really interesting chatting to you. Before I do let you go, uh, something I ask, ask of everyone is last supper, what would you eat? Last supper. It would probably have to be a combo between uh, a, a, a ribeye steak and, uh, and some sort of lamb, uh, be it lamb rump or lamb rack, uh, maybe a, yeah, a bit of both on the plate, I'd say. Uh, Preferably some, yeah, some nice grass-fed uh, pinnacle or uh, type of uh, beef and lamb. Top of my list. And how do you have it cooked? How do I have it cooked? Normally, uh, I'm a bit of a barbecuer here when the when the season. Even though I'll be a, a winter barbecuer up up here over Christmas as well. But the, um, uh, yeah, just barbecue, just grill, fast and hot and fast for the beef and. Uh, similar for the lamb 
And finally, just because it is the festive season, it's probably one of the most controversial topics. Lunch or dinner on Christmas? <laughs> we're, we're a bit more of a dinner. Uh, the, oh, um, see, I'm a lunch so for... I can have a food coma and then go back for round two come dinner. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we're not normally organised enough, so it sort of uh, maybe starts out in theory as a lunch, but ends up gravitating towards a towards a uh, a dinner. Which, um, yeah, but either way, there's there's normally plenty of uh, plenty of options for food and drink on on Christmas Day. Albeit it'll be a strange stranger one this year. Nick, thanks so much for joining me on the Grass Matters podcast. Thanks, Andrew. Appreciate it. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. Thanks for listening to the Grass Matters podcast. Remember, you can actually listen to this at any time just by searching Grass Matters podcast in your favourite streaming app. And also keep in touch with what's happening. Follow us on our socials at Great Southern Family.